but it's these series of small moments that's stretching and growing our faith to have the capacity to say, I give it all to you. And so we die these deaths a little bit each day to ourselves as we deny ourselves and look to him. Hello. Oh, there it is. Would you please stand for the reading of the word? I'm reading from the ESV, and it's Acts 7, verses 51, through Acts 8, verse 3. You stiff-necked people. <laughs> Not you guys. No. <laughs> Unless it applies. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, and who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground, grinded their teeth at him, and he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. This is the stoning of Stephen. Okay. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved all this execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering the house after house, he dragged off men and women and, and committed them to prison. You may be seated. I'll grab it. <laughs> Thanks, Joyce. After listening to you read that, I, I would just like to have you stand up here and give running commentary through the whole thing. I think that would be fantastic. Well, we come to uh, a serious passage uh, in the life of the early church where there's a shift of tone and a shift of, of urgency. It would, to, 
Tertullian, who was the African bishop. He lived in, in Carthage. And the paraphrase of his saying is this, that it's the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. And Tertullian experienced the Roman Empire's form of persecution against the early church. He saw it firsthand, and yet he saw the courage of the early church and the way in which it moved forward. The blood of the martyrs, those who are willing to give their lives to the cause of Christ. And we see that martyrdom, those who give over of themselves entirely for the cause of Christ is not something that just happens in the pages of scripture, but it happens even today. That persecution comes and there's great cost to our brothers and sisters across the world. But for us, it's easier just to kind of disconnect from that truth, to, to not feel that sense of urgency because we find ourselves in a, a place that's somewhat more comfortable, that we don't feel the push quite as severe. I remember watching the film Hurt Locker. It, it follows the life of a man who was on the a military bomb squad. And so when he was deployed overseas, every decision he was making was life and death. Do I cut this wire? Do I not? He would get suited up, come in as kind of this last ditch effort to defuse a bomb. And one of the most powerful scenes to me is when he came back home and he's standing in a supermarket aisle and there's all these cereal boxes in front of him and he's paralyzed because he doesn't know which one to choose. See, when life and death is hanging in the balance, there's a lot of clarity. But in the, the ordinary, everyday, mundane moments of life, those wear us down. They, they kind of put this glaze over us so we forget that within each of our decisions, life and death is hanging in the balance. It's these moments for us where instead of turning to the Lord to, to soothe us in our angst, we, we just turn to our phones and begin to scroll through them. Or those moments where we feel an invitation from him at the end of our day, a long day, we're tired, and we just feel him calling us, just come spend some time with me, and we respond with, a, okay, but let me just finish this one more email that turns into two and so on. It's these small decisions that have significant impact on how we step into life. We pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. In our reading this last week, if you're reading along with us, we came to that very passage. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. When we step into the book of Acts today, we are stepping into the story of Stephen. We met him last week. He was chosen to be one of the seven to administer to those widows who were in need. He was a man full of the spirit and full of wisdom. He was of good repute. And we're going to discover that he was a powerful man who chased after God. And we're going to discover that his life was so offensive to some around him, the way in which he lived for Jesus, that they demanded death of him. And yet he lived so fully and freely that even in the face of death, he experienced life. 
And so we're going to walk through and we're going to see the accusation and his attestation. And we're going to see the aggravation that would ultimately lead to Stephen following in the footsteps of Jesus and becoming the church's first martyr that would give of himself entirely. So let's go back to the beginning of this account in Acts chapter 6 verse 8. And we read in this verse that Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now this is important to note, the description that we're given. We've already seen that he's a man full of wisdom, full of the spirit. He's of good repute, but now we see that he's full of grace and he's full of power, dunamis, the Greek word there. It's the, the word that we get our English word dynamite for. It's the same thing that Jesus had promised to the disciples that you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And Stephen was living this truth out as he was living in tune with the Spirit. And so we see a man who is full of grace and power performing great wonders and signs among the people. In verse 9, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. This synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, would have been a place where former slaves or freed slaves would gather to worship. They would hold that in common from all across the world, all over from the diaspora, these Jews that would come back home as free men and women to worship their God. And this dispute arises between them against Stephen. And we're told in verse 10, but they, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. What set Stephen apart was the wisdom and the spirit of God actively moving in him. They could not withstand that which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now we are told in this moment that they're coming against Stephen and they can't make any headway. Everything they bring at him, he just can't be stopped. He's got such wisdom and the spirit is so powerful in him that they just they're at a loss. And not even masking what's going on here, they start to trump up false charges against him. They bring false witnesses to come and push on him. And everything we see is being stacked against Stephen here. And the charges that are brought against him are this, that he's speaking against the temple. He's speaking against the temple, saying he's, this place will be destroyed. Now, Jesus said these very same words in reference to himself. You're going to destroy this temple, speaking of himself, but it will rise again. But this physical temple will also be destroyed. There's conversation around that as well. And here, they're, they're attaching those words to Stephen. You're, you're talking about the destruction of this place that we hold so sacred. The very center of our worship. He's speaking against it. And then he's speaking against the law. That he's seeking to change the customs of Moses. Now these charges have serious implications to them. Because for the council, for the Sanhedrin that he's being brought before to speak against the temple was to speak against God. To speak against the law was to speak against God. 
And so this rust trial is put together because no one could contend with the life and the words of Stephen. And what we're told is even as these accusations are coming against him, in verse 15, it says, and gazing at him, all who were there and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that, like the face of an angel. And this is not a man you want to mess with. If you're bringing false accusations at him, you're like, yeah, he looks like an angel. Because this would drum up certain things in their minds of where have we seen someone who had such a serene face? Well, do you remember when Moses was in the presence of God and the glory of God was shining in Moses' face? This is what Luke is drawing our attention to here. So you remember Moses, the one that they rejected too in so many different ways? This same, uh, this same Stephen is now sitting there like an angel. There's something about his countenance that, that is, is almost disturbing to those who are bringing accusations against him. It was Jesus when he stood upon the mountain that was transfigured and his, his face shone so brightly, his, his whole countenance changed and shifted. And so we see these parallels being brought to us in what Stephen is experiencing. And so this trial begins with the one sitting there accused with a face like an angel. And we're told that the high priest... Most likely at this time would have still have been Caiaphas who resided over much of what happened with Jesus. The high priest said, are these things so? Meaning, Stephen, are, are you speaking against the temple? Are you speaking against the law? Do you have anything to back up or to say that this is untrue? And what unfolds now is the longest address we have of anyone in the book of Acts. That Stephen is going to speak and he's a man full of, of grace and wisdom and power and the spirit. And he stands before his false accusers and he answers them with truth. And with a graciousness that I'm not sure many of us in this room would be capable of knowing the circumstances. Now this address is, is long. And in many ways, it reads like an introduction to the Hebrew scriptures. It's, it's stories for, for some of you that you'll be very familiar with. You're like, I know this stuff already. The very audience that Stephen was speaking to was to know these things, to have memorized these things, to have lived these things. And I would encourage you at some point in this week, at some point, whether maybe even today, that you sit down and you read this all the way through. You take it in its entirety. And if you've been reading along with us, you'll recognize some of these stories of Abraham because that's where we find ourselves right now in our daily reading. This sermon alone that, that Stephen speaks could be a, a multi-week study that we could go into. And I'll be honest with you, I wrestled with how much of this do we take at a time. And my, my home group can attest to that very wrestle as they prayed through, okay, what are you thinking of doing with this? And what I think is really important for us is rather than to stop and drag this out for the next nine weeks is to really take this as a whole because what Stephen is doing in his defense is something brilliant that God is working in and through him. So I want to capture this. And I know some of you are like, wait, that takes us all the way through 8.3 and we're still in chapter 6 and we know how long you can go. I understand that. Okay, so we're going to do some of our flyover. We're not going to hit everything, but we're going to hit the highlights as we look at this because I think it's important to capture the idea that Stephen is going after here. And so just, just as an aside, too, before we get in here, 
Stephen is one of those people that, for good reason, we look to and we admire. We look at his words, and as we read through them, we'll be challenged by them, but we'll also say, I could never, I could never do that. In the face of such opposition, in the face of my life being on the line, I could never speak those words. And you're right. You couldn't, and, and Stephen didn't. See, this is the beauty of what Jesus promised to his disciples and what he promised to us. He said, opposition is going to come. It's going to hit you hard. It's going to hit you fast. But in Mark 13, 9, again, we're going to get to that in our reading in this coming week. He said this, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to the councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say but say whatever is given you in that hour for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. This should be such a comfort to each and every one of us. I know it's a comfort to me because often we think I have to have all the right answers at all the right times, but really we have to be attuned to what the Spirit is speaking to us in these moments. And there's been so many times in my own life where an answer has come where I'm like, well, that was not me. Thank you, Lord. That blessed me in in the distribution of your word. And we're going to see Stephen step into this in a way that is so far beyond what he is humanly capable. But he's a man who's full of the Spirit and reliant on the Word of God, pressing and pushing in him. And so the question is raised to Stephen. Are these things true? Are these accusations true that are coming against you? And now Stephen begins to address all those who are present. And in verse 2, Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. See, Stephen begins this trial with common ground. He takes it back to our father Abraham. Brothers and fathers is the way in which he addresses the crowd around him. He says, the God of glory, God in the weight of his full glory, appeared to Abraham. And where did he appear to him? Was it in Israel? Was it at the temple? No, it was in Mesopotamia. But today for us is like modern day Iraq. God is appearing outside the promised land. He's appearing and he's speaking to Abraham and calling him forth and saying, go to the land that I will show you. See, Stephen is about to show them. He's about to show them that he's not speaking against the temple. He he never has been speaking against the temple. He's never been speaking against the law. Rather, what Stephen is about to put on display is that he has been speaking of the very one who has come to be the fulfillment of them both. The very trajectory that God had set long before that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so we're going to see Stephen begin with Abraham, and he's going to trace the story of God through Abraham, then to Joseph, then to Moses, then the prophets. And along the way, Stephen's also going to raise up this point that the people continually rejected those that God had sent on his behalf. And so he begins with Abraham, reminding him of the glory of God that had appeared to him outside of the promised land, revealing his glory in a land other than Israel. 
And then he would go on to describe Abraham's answer to the call. Even before the fulfillment of any promise, Abraham says yes to God and begins to pursue him and follow him, uprooting himself and his family and going where God would call him. But God would tell him along the way, not only am I promising things to you, there's going to be some promises I'm going to make that aren't going to be very pleasant. And verse 6, Stephen reminds us of this. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring, Abraham's offspring, would be sojourners. They'd be wanderers in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And so God is telling Abraham, listen, your descendants, they'll be wanderers. And I know I'm promising you a great nation, but they're going to go into a foreign land. They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Turns out it would be 430 years that they would be enslaved in Egypt. And we're going to see this play out, that the promise here was enslavement and infliction for these descendants. But what else did God promise? This is going to happen, but again, I'm, I'm going to draw you out, and you will worship me once again in this place. In what place? Back where the temple would eventually be? No, on the soil of Sinai, outside of, of the promised land, is where they would come back to worship once again. Because Stephen is going to be harping on this over and over again. God is not confined to any one place. He's not confined to any one place. This isn't an, an indictment against the temple. He's just reminding them along the way that God has shown up throughout human history in various ways and at various times and in various places. And so he starts with the common footing of Abraham, their forefather, and then he moves into Joseph. Verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. We know the story of Joseph well. We know the affliction that came with his story, betrayed by his own brothers, sold uh, into slavery. He would make his way to, to Egypt once favored by his father, now lost and thought dead by his father. He's in a foreign land, but God would still protect him. God would still fill him with his spirit. And, and Joseph's wisdom would be seen. And all who were around him experienced the blessing of God working through him so much so that even Pharaoh saw this and took him under his wing and gave him great power to rule over the land because there was such wisdom in Joseph. But who are the ones that had rejected him? Well, it was his very own brothers, his very own people. And Stephen would continue to remind his listeners who knew this story all too well. That famine would come throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and the very brothers who rejected Joseph would find themselves coming back to Egypt for, for rescue, not realizing that the brother whom they'd betrayed was now ruling over and, and administering all the food and what was happening there. And so Joseph in this moment had the opportunity, would he show mercy or would he just cast his brothers aside? And we see that he was merciful. Verse 17, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there rose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. What he's 
speaking to here is that Joseph, who rose to such prominence, would bring his entire family down to, to make their home in Egypt. But eventually they would grow so numerous that Pharaoh felt threatened and eventually they would forget the stories of Joseph and all he had done for Egypt and they would just see these Hebrew people as a nuisance. And so they began to enslave them and entrap them and use them for, for labor, forced labor. The descendants of Abraham, the man of this promise, were now enslaved in Egypt. And so Stephen's walking us from Abraham to Joseph, and now to Moses. Now again, these are not unfamiliar stories with us. If you've gone to church for any length of time, you've probably heard the names of Abraham, Joseph, and, and most likely Moses. And the audience that, that he was speaking to in this moment, they had memorized these stories. They knew them inside and out. They had taught these stories. So he wasn't revealing anything new to them. So what was he doing? Was he just buying time, hoping they would forget the accusation against him? And he'd, they'd be like, no, he's a good man. He knows the law. He knows the word. No, he's, he's answering their question. And in so doing, he's reminding them of their own part in the story. Reminding them where they fit in. And reminding them of what they're actually missing as a part of the full story. And I think even for all the familiarity that Joseph or that Stephen is taking us through in this moment, there's something here for us to lean into and see ourselves in this same story. But not in the seat of the hero, but in those who are so often prone to miss the point. I recognize myself well as I read through Stephen and his shares with this group of men. And so he moves from Abraham to Joseph to Moses. Verse 20. It says, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and his deeds. See, Stephen is going to continue to draw out certain themes. Joseph was a man of, of wisdom, rejected by his brothers, rejected by his people. And here we see that Moses was a man of wisdom, mighty in words and in deeds. Now, what might be surprising for us is this is the same Moses who later, when in a conversation with God himself, would say, but Lord, I am slow to speech and slow of tongue, and yet he's being described here as a man of great wisdom, mighty in both word and in deed. So you'd be this Moses who would be rescued by the very hand of God, raised in, in a home of, of Pharaoh by his daughter, receiving the best education possible, living a life that would by many accounts be a charmed life. And it looked like he had it all, but there had come this point where he would wrestle with his true identity of who he was, that he was a Hebrew. And he watched the affliction of his people. And as he saw an Egyptian slave master just driving over and and coming after one of his own people, he couldn't, he couldn't take it anymore. And so he steps in. And in stepping in to, to rescue this man in this moment, he ended up killing the Egyptian. In his own strength, he rushed God's plan. And he said, I'm going to step in. I'm going to take care of this. 
Later, two Hebrew men would be arguing back and forth and we're told the story that Moses would step in between them and be like, your brothers, why are you arguing? And they looked at him and they're like, who made you judge and ruler over us? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? It was in this moment that Moses knew his actions were known and so he fled at the age of 40, he leaves the life that he knew, everything that he had, everything that he had built, everything he thought would be, he leaves and he flees and he finds himself in, in Midian where he would find a wife and, and, and have two sons and he would live in relative obscurity, shepherding his father-in-law's flock until we're told that one day he was out and as he was walking around, he saw something that he, he couldn't quite make sense of. He saw the flame of fire in a bush, but it was not burning. And so Moses, he turned aside to pay attention to what was happening. And in verse 31, Stephen describes that when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. Now come, and I will send you to Egypt. Two important things to, to see in this, this little interaction here. Where was this holy ground? Was it in the temple? Was it in the tabernacle? Was it in Israel? No. It's Sinai. Why was this ground holy? Because the presence of the holy was there. That's what makes something holy, because the presence of God was there. So take off your shoes, Moses, for you are on holy ground. Second thing to notice, God had heard the affliction of his people. He heard these cries that had risen up to them. He had heard their prayers of anguish. He had seen their pain, and he had come to deliver them. And the instrument of redemption and rescue that he would use was Moses, the very one whom his Hebrew brothers had already rejected. Again, you may be beginning to see the pattern of Stephen's thinking. God is working outside of Israel in unexpected ways. He's revealing his glory wherever he pleases. And the ones that he is using, the ones who are following the law, the instruction of God, who are clinging close to him, are continually rejected by the ones they are sent to save. It's a pattern that would repeat over and over again. And just in case they were missing this, as Stephen was recounting all that happened, and he's using the very name of Moses, the lawgiver, that God would give the commandments through. The one whom which they all patterned their life after that. They saw the great prophet Moses to emphasize this, beginning in verse 35. He says, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man. God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one 
who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers, and he received living oracles to give to us. This Moses. He says it over and over again. It's this Moses, the one who received the law. This Moses who God used to redeem. This Moses who would also say, there's going to be one who comes after me, a prophet greater than me. This Moses who you seem to want to attend, attend and attune your heart to and your mind to and your actions to. This Moses. This very one. Do you remember how our forefathers responded to this Moses? This Moses whom God had sent. And he finishes that thought, beginning in verse 39. What does he say? Our, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Why is Stephen bringing this up? He's saying there's a pattern and I want you guys to see it in the way in which God moves. You are so concerned about the law. You are so concerned about the temple, but you are missing the presence of what God is doing and how he's stirring and the trajectory that he's been moving all along. He says, your fathers rejected God in this moment. Your fathers rejected Moses, the very one that had been sent as God's provision and redemption. And rather than serve and trust in what God was doing when they were unsure how quickly they turned and said, would you give us something tangible, something we can make with our own hands, something that we can touch and see, and then we will feel comforted. Instead of trusting in God's law, they chose their own way. Instead of recognizing the freedom that was before them, they turned back to the enslavement of Egypt in their hearts. This is what Stephen is bringing before this council, this group that has come to accuse him. And if you start to recognize it, you see what's happening here. That the accusation is coming against Stephen, but he is really very quickly taking this trial and said, actually, I am not the one who's on trial here. It's all of you who are on trial that continue to follow in the footsteps of your father in this great adventure and missing the point of what God has been up to all along. See, and it's here again that I think we find ourselves in the story. For the goodness of God is chasing after us. It's going before us. He's provided a way for us to live in him. And instead of, of looking to him, we, we turn to lesser things. We deny him and we live for ourselves. But Stephen continues on. And what do we see here? Verse 42. He says, but God turned away and he gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. He cites now from Amos chapter 5. Did you bring me, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness O house of Israel? You who took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. They took up the tent of Moloch. They raised the star of Rephan. They started to chase after these false gods. And the scary thing is that, that, that verbiage there, 
that God turned away and he gave them over. Paul uses similar language in Romans 1.28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In the face of God's provision, they again, they, they chose something lesser. And the, the history of God's people is one of disobedience and rejection of God's rescue and redemption. He would send more and more prophets. He would make his presence known through the, the tent of meeting that would move around with them, the tabernacle. And then eventually the, the temple itself, his, his glory would reside there. He would choose to have his glory reside there. But it was clear that nothing made by the hands of man would be able to contain the presence of God. And Stephen would remind them of this in verse 48, and then he would move on to quote from Isaiah 66 in verse 49. Verse 48 says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in the houses made by hands, as the prophet says. This is Isaiah 66, 1. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? We cannot hope to contain God in one particular location. It was by his grace that he chose to have his glory reside in the tabernacle. It was by his grace that he chose to have his glory reside in the temple. And it's by his grace that he chose to have his glory reside in the person of Jesus as he came and lived among us that we might know the way in which we are to go. See, Stephen has been accused of speaking against the temple and speaking against the law. And what he has been showing and what he's been revealing is that God's presence will reside where he chooses. And God has been moving this, this residing of his presence towards something greater so that once again we could walk with him. And this law, this instruction, this Torah has not been abandoned and yet it has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. We have seen it lived in perfection in the life of Jesus. And his instruction and his presence have come in flesh and blood through the life of Jesus. And so he's building all of this up, using the scriptures, painting this picture, reminding them of where they have come from, what God has been doing, how God has been moving, and now, now it turns. See, Stephen was on trial, and now he, he puts them on trial. These are the words we've already heard read. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you will always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. The language here is, is the language of the prophetic. He stands and speaks as, as a prophet against and indicting them. He includes this language of rejection, these phrases that are peppered throughout the scripture for those who are stiff-necked, hard-hearted, stubborn, uncircumcised in heart, those who are unwilling and would resist the work of the Spirit in their life. And his point that he's making is you have rejected God just as your fathers rejected God. You have rejected God's prophets just as your fathers have rejected God's prophet. 
You persecuted the prophets. You killed those who announced the Messiah that was to come. And in fact, you betrayed and you killed the Messiah himself. And he's not pulling any punches in this moment. You were given both the law and the temple. And you could not even keep the law. And I'm sure he knew even in this moment as he's being tried, they're not keeping the law. They're bringing false witnesses against him. He's like, you cannot even keep the law and you come here and you rebuke me. And you've missed the very presence of God as he walked among you. The very Messiah who'd come to rescue, redeem, and restore you. You put to death. And so we see this attestation of the life and the witness of Stephen in this moment. And now we see the aggravation that it causes. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There's this push and pull happening here as they come in full force. They're enraged, grinding their teeth, gritting their teeth at what he is saying. But Stephen, again, a man full of the Spirit, overflowing with the Spirit, he's not agitated at their aggravation. Now he sees them and he continues to keep his eyes fixed on the one who can bring life. And he looks and he sees the glory of God and Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Standing. Standing at the right hand of God. There's something incredible about this moment. Because we often read that Jesus would be seated at the right hand of God. That he'd have power and authority. But what we see here is that Jesus is standing up from his throne. Now, there's a number of things that are, are, are happening in this one moment. Because what this tells us is that Jesus is actively now engaged with what's happening with Stephen. He's not sitting passively judging. No, he's standing up. He's observing what's happening to Stephen. He's paying attention. And the act of, of standing when someone would rise from their throne was that there was judgment that would come. And what we see here is that in this moment, Jesus is standing on behalf of Stephen. Do you see the beauty of this moment? That in this trial, we're all we're coming against Stephen. Stephen was never, ever, ever alone. That as Stephen chose to stand on behalf of Jesus, Jesus was with him and standing on his behalf. The same is true for each of us that we have a great high priest who goes before God pleading our case on our behalf. And this is what we see living out as Jesus is actively engaged in what's happening here in this moment. It could make me cry too. I, I get it. I'm there. Whew. I needed that break. I was, I was, you feel that though. Never alone, but Jesus standing with him. And they cried out with a loud voice. And they stopped their ears. They were so aggravated at what was happening, they, they plugged their ears. This is like a, a temper tantrum happening. Like, la, 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 I cannot hear you. And they rush at him. Now, David Gutzik, I was, I was listening to something he said, and I thought this was so interesting. The language here, if they rushed at him, 
In the Greek, and the way it's written, it actually is the same language that is used when, when Jesus cast out the demons into the pigs and they rushed into the lake. It carries that same flavor. They're just kind of madly rushing towards it. They, they could not contain themselves. They rushed at him together. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. They didn't wait for the authority to do this. We actually know that they did not have the authority under Rome to do this on their own, but they just, they didn't care. They were so enraged at this moment that they take him, they cast him and they stone him. And the witnesses here laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And what have we learned about Luke? When he drops a name, we should pay attention. He's setting us up for what's coming next. And he wants to make sure that we're aware that this Saul was there presiding over what was happening. Because that's going to be important. And this is actually going to be something that sticks with Saul for the rest of his life. That changes him. See, typically it was the person who was standing in, in judgment, who was being judged, that would be stripped of their clothing. But I think it's interesting that in this moment we see them stripping themselves of their clothing as they cast stones against Stephen. In verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. In this moment, we see Stephen as he's giving of his life. He's mirroring the very words that Jesus spoke on the cross. The words that Jesus would speak of, Father, receive my spirit. The words that Jesus would speak of, do, do not hold this against them. Stephen is just following in the footsteps of his Savior who's standing with him. And Stephen, who was stoned in such a cruel fashion, is said to have fallen asleep. It seems so soft compared to the cruelty of what we were seeing. And it's not meant to soften the blow of the savagery here, but it's a reminder that Jesus was not absent from Stephen in this moment. In fact, Stephen was about to step into the full presence of Jesus in this moment. And what we recognize is that Stephen would not be the last to face such a fate. My prayer is that we would be so bold as to experience it in the way that he did. Trusting that our Lord is standing beside us. Verse 8, it said, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and, and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul went on a tear after this. He persecuted those who followed in the way of Jesus and he went after them with a tenacity. And we see as a result of this that the church is going to be pushed out of just Jerusalem. And the good news is going to begin to spread further and farther because the good news cannot be contained. First Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the church would continue to thrive as it does even today in the face of opposition. And as we read this, I know we're, we're challenged by this. And, and it's a little unsettling at times as we read through this. And there's lots of our own internal questions that may come up. of Like, what? okay, what do I do with this? 
And there's, there's three things that I just want to pull out for us. You may have seven more on your own, but here's three things that I saw. As Stephen walked through the Hebrew scriptures, it's easy to point to those who, who missed the full extent of what God was doing. It's easy to point our fingers at our, our forefathers in the faith and, and wag our fingers disapprovingly. What I want to encourage you to do is ask yourself, where do you identify most with them? Where have you stood in their shoes? Where have you missed what God is doing in your midst? Where have you confined God to a way of thinking that is not his, but it's yours and yours alone? Where are you limiting him and what he can do? Where have you created rules that are your own and not his? I think there's always work for us to do in that regard where we try to control him. We cannot control him, nor do we want to. So where are we trying to? Where are we trying to domesticate him, make him safe, make him a place that we can go to once a week and then not have to think about him the rest of the week? Where are we doing that? The second thing is this. Stephen's example is one that we can take both sorrow and strength from. I don't know what the future holds. None of us do. I don't know who in this room may have to make such a great commitment that they are going to have to give of themselves entirely and stand and give a defense for their faith. I, I don't know who, who that could be or what that will look like. But I, I do know that we will all experience the everyday ordinary moments where God is calling us to deny ourselves. And it's often in these small everyday ordinary moments where our faith is being most tested. It's preparing us to trust in those big moments when everything seems to be on the line, but it's these series of small moments that's stretching and growing our faith to have the capacity to say, I give it all to you, Lord. And so we die these deaths a little bit each day to ourselves as we deny ourselves and look to him. But if we can't be trusted in the small moments, why do we think we're going to shine in the big moments? See, I think Stephen had already experienced the grace and goodness of God in such a way that he had already faced numerous small deaths to himself. So when the, the opportunity came and he stood before those men in that council, there was no fear because he's like, I, I've experienced so much with God. He has shown himself faithful. You've got nothing on him. So what's an area of your life maybe right now that God is inviting you maybe to give up? Deny yourself on his behalf. And maybe even as I'm saying that, you know exactly what it is. You've just been ignoring it. You're like, no, I, I just don't want to. And it keeps coming back. No, this, this may not seem like a big thing, but I have something for you. Is he, is he pushing on you to, to deny yourself and maybe serve your spouse in a way where you're like, but I don't think I'm going to get that in return if I serve them. But he's saying, that's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you just to serve as I served and to love as I loved. Deny yourself and follow me. Is it how you engage with your kids? Is it how you engage with your, your friends around you? 
Is it coming face to face with your own selfishness that you just need to put others before yourself? Is it as simple as maybe just rising a little bit earlier to be with Jesus? Sleep is precious, I know that. It's hard. Is it something he's asking you to fast from, to give up for a while so that he can speak more clearly to you? My encouragement is that when we walk away from something like this, it's not just to suddenly go, I'm going to give my life and I'm going to go pick a fight so that I can die for Jesus. I want to be like Stephen. If you want to be like Stephen, then begin with those small practices daily where you deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow after Jesus. The last thing is this. Those of you hearing this who maybe have yet to step into life with Christ, you don't see the point. You're like, this sounds terrible. Stephen gives his life to Jesus. Now he gets to pay in full with his own life. This does not sound like something I want to raise my hand for. Or maybe some of you here, you're pursuing Jesus and you just, you're not even like lukewarm. You're just like tepid water. You're like, I don't really even know why I'm paying attention right now. I just want to remind you that when you stand with Christ, You never stand alone, for he stands with you. This is the truth and the comfort that each and every one of us can take. We do not stand alone, but he stands with us when we stand with him. And I have no doubt that Stephen in this sermon that he was given was cut off from the invitation that he was going to give. Because his sermon had really lined up well with what Peter had done on that day of Pentecost. But they were so enraged that he didn't get to get out the words of of repent and turn. Because they wanted nothing to do with it. But I hear his plea in this. Of if you have not begun to step in, in faith with Jesus, would you turn? Would you find life? Because in him you can find life even in the face of death. For when you stand with Jesus, you are never alone, for he stands with you. As we close, we're going to take communion together. And then we're going to sing together. The words of the song that we're going to sing say, My portion, I see thy hand, my Savior. It guides me day by day. I know that thou art with me through all my pilgrim way, and yet no thought so precious, so full of joy to me, is this, thou art my portion, and shall forever be. In the life of Stephen, we see him resting in the assurance that Jesus was standing alongside him. Each of us in this room can have that same assurance that Jesus is standing alongside us, come what may. And so as we come to the Lord's table, as we take of the bread and the cup, we remember his willingness to give all on our behalf. That he set the pattern, he set the trajectory for us that we may fully and freely live in him. So as we come and we take of the bread, we're reminded of his body broken on our behalf. So let us take of the bread Let us remember, let us remember Christ.
as we flip the cup over and we see the juice, a reminder of his blood that was shed for us. A reminder that he is enough, that he has paid it all, that in him all our debts are forgiven. So wherever you find yourself this morning, and maybe you need to take stock and come before him and say, Lord, I have been denying you and not myself for too long. And I need to turn my heart back towards you and drink fully and freely of your cup in remembrance of what you've done for me. And I would encourage you to do so. Remember that he is your portion and that he shall forever be enough. So let us take of the cup together, remembering this truth of Jesus. Father, you are good. And Lord, the vision of Stephen in the face of rage and outrage and chaos, what did he see? He saw you standing. He saw you welcoming him. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that we would not miss your presence, that we would not limit your presence to simply uh, one place, but God, we would be reminded that you have come and you now reside in us wherever we find ourselves. That in you is life. And Father, the law, the instruction that you gave, you came and lived that to its full and you, you point us in the way and in the instruction of life and that is in you. And yet, God, we are so easily distracted. We are so quick to turn to the lesser. May we see the hands of our Savior that guide us day by day and know that you are with us through all our pilgrim ways. And would we know the full joy that you are our portion. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.